Thanks to LegalZoom for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Whether you want to take your business to the next level or take control of your family's future with an estate plan, LegalZoom is where to start. They're not a law firm, but their network of independent attorneys can help keep you on track. For special savings, go to LegalZoom.com and enter the promo code FOOL at checkout. That's LegalZoom.com. It's Monday, February 26th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio. From Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday, gents. What's happening? Happy Monday. In three more days in this month, so it seems like 2018 no just started. We're flying right through it. We're flying right through Sixth it. Sixth of the way there. We're going to d- nice math. Wait a <laughs> See? That's the kind of skill we bring to this podcast. I don't know what they're doing over at Bloomberg, but we got math skills on this podcast. Fractions. Not just a hat rack, my friend. <laughs> don't ask me to turn that into a percentage, but uh... <laughs> we're going to talk ratios later. Uh, we we are going to dip into the full mailbag in a little bit, but we got to start with what just got so many investing nerds excited Saturday morning, which was the release, the annual release of the Berkshire Hathaway letter. And there's a couple things I want to get to, but Jason, I'll just start with you. I mean, I mean, all kidding aside, this this is this is something that uh, investors of any age would do well to just go to BerkshireHathaway.com, which uh, for two reasons: one, because I don't think they've updated that website since 1997. <laughs> I was going to say, you might think that you came to like the archived Ex- version of it. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not the archived version. They have the most basic website imaginable. But two, the, the collection of annual letters from Buffett and his team are just fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm curious if anything in particular stood out to you in this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, I've read all of them. And I mean, I think your point is very well taken because they do a very good job of. of Making them not redundant, you know, you would think they would be just sort of repetitive after a while, but they really keep it fresh every year. I think with this this year's letter, I mean, if you read nothing else in the letter, I think read pages eleven and twelve, where he talks about the bet he made back in two thousand and seven, mm-hmm. where ultimately he was going up against five funds picked from the experts, and he was going to use just a a cost free. Unmanaged S and P index fund, and basically just put put that S and P index fund against those other five experts. Let's let ten years go by and see see which which fund performs best. And uh, to no surprise, I mean, spoiler alert here: the the, the S and P index fund was by far and away the best performer, and that's for a number of reasons. I mean, but ultimately he shines the light on the fact that there are real costs in fees that these hedge fund managers. Uh, Manage the costs that they rake in, whether the fund performs, outperforms, underperforms, no matter what, those those costs are there. And really, we always sort of talk about this investing for the long haul, taking a long term approach, and that is not just uh, we don't we don't we don't say that lightly. I mean, that is really how we feel about it. And, and this was proof that it works. And he just kind of closed it out with quote: "Performance comes, performance goes, fees never falter." End quote. <laughs> and, and I think that really uh, sums it up nicely. Yeah, I think one of those funds of funds didn't even make it the full decade. Yeah. <laughs> Close up yeah. shop. Taylor, anything stand out to you? Whether it was from the letter or from this morning, he sat down uh, with a, our friend Becky Quick at CNBC. Mm-hmm. Um, they covered a whole range of topics. I'm curious if anything caught your attention. Yeah, no, I mean, he's just feeling good about the tax the tax reform, and uh, everything's expensive out there. That, so, 
We'll get to the tax reform in just a second, um, because what that meant for Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> was nice even more cash <laughs> yeah. for Buffett's elephant gun. Seriously. And we'll get to that in a second. One of the things that came up in the interview this morning that I caught my attention was when he was asked about Wells Fargo. And I was saying right before we started taping, Jason, Warren Buffett and Wells Fargo is one of the big four holdings at Berkshire mm-hmm. Hathaway. I think you, it's number three overall. Um, it's up there with IBM, and I, I don't know if American Express. Is I think that's still, still fifteen that billion point. dollars. Yeah, but he really seems to cut the current management at Wells Fargo a lot of slack when you consider that the CEO, the current CEO, who hasn't been in the CEO chair that long, was there the whole time. When they went through their whole, you know, fake account scandal. Yeah, I think looking at this, Wells Fargo actually, according to the letter here, actually may very well still be the largest the holding one, yeah. in in value today. And and I mean the returns on the investment, it's been basically a a three bagger or so, close to it at least. And that's what makes you kind of think, man. I mean, you guys are giving them a lot of slack for that because I, I feel like Wells Fargo really. They just continue to step in it. It seems like month after month, quarter after quarter, um, and given that they focus so much on leadership and incentives, it does seem kind of like they're giving a, a pass on it. But by the same token, I mean they've been in this investment for a long time, mm-hmm. and so maybe they see this as sort of a a dark period for that holding. But they believe that things will get better. I think I've said more than once. I, I mean, we give Wells Fargo a hard time, and they deserve it. But I think that we're going to look back five years from now, and this will probably prove to be a good time to have invested in the bank because it is, no matter which way you cut, it's still a very, very large bank that I don't see going away ever. And who knows what they're saying to them behind closed doors? Because yeah. they're on speed dial, no doubt. Um, so maybe you don't want to talk too negatively publicly about your number one holding, but um, or public stock holding, but. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's some some conversations that have been had and will be had. I tweeted. You think Sloan looks down at his phone and sees <laughs> like, that Buffett is oh, gone? No. Yeah, he probably picks up. That's the Omaha, the Omaha zip code. There he I tweeted the old Ask Warren thing this morning. I don't. I never heard any answers. I was kind of. What was your question? Because CNBC was doing that this morning. They're yeah, like, hey, they were send doing us your that. questions. Hashtag Ask Warren. Yeah, and they, I mean they took some sort of trader questions, which was kind of killing me. I mean, mm-hmm. like some Teva question is stupid. But anyway, <laughs> it was like so. I mean, it was they were talking about the healthcare stuff. And and so I my question was just as they get the ball rolling on helping to reshape our healthcare system, I was wondering if he had a perspective or an opinion on uh, telehealth or virtual healthcare, just because we're seeing it more and more uh, becoming a, a a central offering to mm-hmm. a lot of healthcare plans, including United Health Group. Yeah. Um, and I think that Berkshire used to own United Health Group. They may not anymore, but. Uh, Regardless, I mean, given given their status in trying to help reshape healthcare, just learning learning more about sort of how he sees technology disrupting, and that would be interesting. Well, and that's very well a topic that could come up at the annual meeting yeah. uh, in April. Uh, I guess it's late April, early May, whenever the annual meeting is, and and Buffett and Warren and Charlie Munger have their marathon six hour Q and A session. Uh, before we get to their cash, uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Hoda Mayer, who's uh, one of our listeners who we yes. met in San Francisco, and um, she tweeted out highlighting this line from Buffett's letter. What investors need is an ability to both disregard mob fears or enthusiasms and to focus on a few simple fundamentals. A willingness to look unimaginative for a sustained period, or even to look foolish, 
is also essential. I know. It's great. Small f foolish, yeah. but we, we know what we, you meant. We, we feel like we have the simpatico. <laughs> yeah. um, more cash than ever before is at mm-hmm. Buffett's disposal. And holy cow, does he, re- as you indicated, Taylor, he really seems like he's itching to buy something. <laughs> yeah. But he's a value guy at heart. He looks across the market and he doesn't see the bargains that he wants to mm-hmm. see. But come on. I mean, do we really think 2018 is going to end and Berkshire hasn't made an acquisition? I don't know. I I feel like pretty early in the year I feel like they'll probably and, find something. And it's the amount of money that they have. They have like don't they have over it's, 100 billion in so cash and yes. short term equivalents? I mean, so so what's let's give me and and when I say me I mean Warren. Give Warren Buffett <laughs> Your recommendation. He comes to you and says, "Look, it's this money's burning a hole in my pocket. <laughs> nice I gotta buy something." I don't know what do you think. Yeah, so I think uh, one company I've been looking at quite closely, uh, Waste Connections. Um, yeah. It's a Canadian company, but it trades in the U.S. Uh, after they uh, they purchased Progressive Waste Solutions back in 2016. Uh, just pr- phenomenal performer in the same group as uh, Waste Management and um, Republic Services. So. They're basically hauling your trash away, your recycling, and they also dabble a little bit in um, exploration, production, waste on the oil and gas side. But um, they've been a nice acquirer of smaller businesses in the secondary markets that maybe their two larger peers don't really concentrate on. But the returns are phenomenal. Free cash flow generation is just uh, through the roof right now. I think they turned almost 16% of revenue last year into free cash flow, um, and they're just. Good margins, um, better returns than their peers. So it's a company. It's obviously not cheap at the moment, but the the, the multiples have come down over the last uh, few quarters, and it's it's one that I'm looking at closely. And it checks the moat box, the return box. It's very easy to understand. You know, they pick up your trash and they <laughs> they take it to where you can no longer see it, and uh, and they recycle it. So um, uh, big fan of this business, and it's just been a little pricey for me in the last year or so, but uh, it's coming back down to earth. So. I like this business a lot. What's the ticker? WCN. Jason, what about you? Okay, I've got a couple of ideas real quick. Now, he talked about the four building blocks that add value to Berkshire. Acquisitions served as two of those building blocks. And acquisitions uh, in one way that you can just stand on their own, or acquisitions that are maybe kind of bolt on or complements to businesses they already have. Uh, so, one that could stand on its own and serve sort of complementary to, to holdings they already have. I think, and, and I've said this probably since I've been here, the fool is McCormick, uh, ticker is MKC, uh, but this is the Spice King, right? And they generate healthy returns on equity, uh, which is a metric he, he mm-hmm. cares about. Uh, again, I think it's very complementary to what they already have in their Kraft Heinz holding. So, I mean, hey, you've got like. The ketchup and you've got the mustard. You basically now you get the whole hot dog, right? You've got everything that goes on the hot dog. You basically own that. Uh, so, I mean, French's, Frank's, and the by big the way, as a selling point to Buffett, that line would just might seal the deal. Given what we know about Warren Buffett's diet, it very <laughs> well may. What if I could tell you you could have the whole hot yeah, dog? You like hot dogs, don't you? Everybody likes all them. the seasoning in your burger too. Uh, and I mean, like it, it for him. I mean, hey, listen, you know, their their value proposition, I think, is the best of any public company. I've ever seen, in that they say their products are responsible for 10% of the cost, and yet 90% of the flavor. I mean, if there is, that is the most compelling thesis I think I've ever seen. Um, so for me, I just think that McCormick seems like a very Berkshire-like business where they could buy it and just let those guys keep doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one I think is Ellie May, very small company, much smaller. 
than McCormick, ticker is ELLI. But given their exposure to housing, Ellie Mae is known for its Encompass software platform, which basically helps power much of the lending that goes on in that housing market today. So I think either one of those companies could serve them very well. If they went with Ellie Mae, don't you think they rebranded Berkshire Hathaway? Because they've a lot of their acquisitions they just leave alone. Mm-hmm. But there have been some, particularly in the housing market, where they have rebranded them. Yeah, it's, cer- it's certainly possible. It's funny. I mean, whenever we talk about Ellie Mae, and I think people immediately start thinking Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and yeah. what's the relationship there? Sally Mae with the student lending. So it, it, it certainly uh, is one where they could probably rebrand it under the Berkshire Hathaway brand and not lose, uh, you know, one one bit of the uh, growth in the business. Interesting uh, weekend, and uh, coming into this week, uh, I think. Uh, FedEx becomes a company to watch because one of the things we saw over the weekend in terms of businesses, and certainly if you if uh, if you're on Twitter, you probably saw this playing out, and it, it has to do with in the wake of uh, the shootings at the high school in Florida uh, and the backlash that the National Rifle Association is getting. There were a number of businesses, particularly when it came to airlines and rental car companies. Who offer discounts to NRA members in the same way that uh, AARP gets discounts? Which actually, that's a reminder that I need to join the AARP because <laughs> I am of a certain age. I'm not retiring anytime soon, but I, I do need to join AARP and start getting some of those discounts. But anyway, so so some of these companies just sort of looked at the backlash and, and decided this isn't worth it to us anymore. The pressure that we're getting from other Customers who are not uh, involved with the NRA, mm-hmm. and the one that has the largest company, to my knowledge, that um, is still offering that discount is FedEx. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, Jason, if you think that this now becomes something, if if not necessarily um, a f- part of the thesis for investing in FedEx or perhaps a competitor like UPS, or if nothing else, it just becomes one more factor to watch because it really does seem like, in the same way that Home Depot and Lowe's have kind of tracked each other as stocks when it comes to home improvement, and and for years Home Depot has, however Home Depot does, you can sort of look at Lowe's and go, they're probably going to do eh, about the same, but not quite as good. Mm-hmm. That's kind of been the story with FedEx and UPS, um, certainly over the last few years. Uh, but I'm wondering if if FedEx now has an added risk factor here. I mean, I think it could. I tweeted a few days back that I mean, just going looking at the Bezos Buffett Diamond Healthcare Initiative, for example, and I think this is kind of a sign of things to come, given the dysfunction in Washington D.C. today and the fact that really it's almost impossible for politicians to make anything happen anymore. I think that our brightest business leaders can, and I think we're we're starting to see more and more that. They're trying to impart change, or uh, at least throw some ideas on on how to do things perhaps differently. And once you you get that ball rolling, I mean, you don't have the red tape and the lobbies that you ultimately have to deal with in the political side of things. That can certainly uh, bring change down the line. I think that when you look at this particular situation. Um, there are far more people who are not members of the NRA than are. Mm-hmm. And I'd be willing to bet there are a lot of people out there who are proponents of the Second Amendment, but not members of the NRA. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said, 
because there is a Pepsi to FedEx's Coke, I think it could be something that makes a difference. You have a very good alternative out there. And for people who really care about this, and we know there are a lot of them that do, I think that's a situation where it certainly could play out and affect FedEx's business. That's going to be something their leadership, they're going to have to make that decision on their own, sort of what they stand for. As investors, we talk about that all the time. You kind of have to dictate that line, what matters the most to you. If you look, if you looked at it from the perspective of something like Google, I don't think Google would, because people are going to use Google no matter what. You use it sort of unconsciously, or you just don't even think you're doing it. But I think in the case of, of, uh, of a lot of these businesses are making this decision because they ultimately it's in line with sort of how they want to approach the world. It's sort of their worldview. And, and I think we're going to see more and more of this type of stuff, not just NRA, but in, in all sorts of issues. Um, and, and so I think uh, FedEx is going to have to think about this long and hard. Because there's a very good alternative out there uh, that that does the same exact thing they do, and they do it pretty darn well. Yeah, I, I would just worry like maybe it'll affect them from like an individual user, individual yeah. shipper. But if you're a small, medium-sized business or a large business that already has a relationship with FedEx, it can be pretty sticky to change that because you might already be getting your own discounts from being such a loyal customer and shipping X amount of volume. So I, I mean, there could be some some issue there on the the individual shipper side of things, but. I don't know if it's going to make a, the biggest dent in the world because if you look at like a lot of times when these PR fiascos come out and the country, companies come under fire for something that they necessarily didn't have anything to do with, but they, they you know there's the opinion out there that you want to fall fall in line, it kind of blows over after a little while. Um, so I don't know if it's necessarily an investing thesis, but it's certainly something that the company is going to continue to consider internally. Well, and just as companies that have large accounts are more meaningful than individual Mm -hmm. customers are, it's the same for investing, institutional investors versus individual investors. And that was one of the stories I saw over the weekend, uh, I think, in the journal about BlackRock. BlackRock, yes. And the the uh, which owns I think it's maybe the largest institutional shareholder of a couple of the gun manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And the comment out of BlackRock was, yeah, we've got some questions for them. Yeah. And um, and we're going to have those conversations and we're going to proceed accordingly. And so, you know, and, and same sort of thing. There are, there are individual investors who say, well, I don't want to own cigarette maker stuff. Yeah. I don't want to own gun manufacturer. That's and that's that's totally fine. You can do that. I mean, that's one of the great things about investing. You can it can be a reflection of who yeah. you are, but it means a whole lot more when it's you know <laughs> an institution like yeah. BlackRock that owns millions of shares. Yeah, and you have to be careful how granular you want to go with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people I'm sure who owned uh, shares in companies that had relationships with the NRA before, and now they don't. And so it's very easy to get on your soapbox because it's convenient. Um, you got to, as an investor, you have to be able to determine that line and sort of you got to you got to recognize how far you're willing to go um, with with any of these issues that that happens. Well, to come I think up. even someone discovered that the Florida Teachers Pension Plan owned shares yeah. of gun manufacturers. When this happened, they've since I think sold, but it's a small stake. But still, like it's just like a broad market portfolio. And a lot of times we talk, but yeah, we talk about the direct ownership versus the indirect, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a 401k, you probably don't know really where what what most of those dollars are, are invested in. But chances are, you're probably you have some yeah. exposure to companies that you might not be necessarily in line with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember, and this was. Going back almost 20 years, uh, doing uh, doing an interview with a 
student newspaper, the student newspaper at Yale University. And at the time, the big issue on campus was the Yale Endowment's ownership of cigarette stock, and in particular, Philip Morris. At the, you know, now Altria, then Philip Morris. Mm-hmm. And um, was talking with this student reporter and trying to get across the point that uh, you can't, you know, because students were pushing for the endowment to ditch the cigarette stocks. And the point I was trying to get across to this guy was look, you can do that. You can, you can push for that. But what's going to be more meaningful in a negative way, like if you're trying to hurt Philip Morris, mm-hmm. the move you want to make here is to find out. What's being sold on campus, you know? Yeah. And at the time, Philip Morris owned, you know, uh, consumer goods uh, like foods, mm-hmm. packaged foods, all this sort of thing. And I said, "Let me ask you a few questions." And I ticked off a few of the items, uh, which included, I think, beer as well. And just said, "Are are these sold on campus? Can it, you know, can I go into a Yale cafeteria and buy these things?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Okay, well then." <laughs> Yeah. Then yeah. you can sell the stock. Someone else is going to buy it. That's not really going to hurt Philip Morris's bottom line. If you really want to affect some change, get the school to stop selling those products. Yeah. But, and I mean, you're owning their stock doesn't really benefit that company whatsoever. I mean, you have a little ownership in that, but you bought that share of stock from someone else, not mm-hmm. the company itself. Yep. So that's yeah, like like we said, you got to just you got to sort of take an inventory of how far you're willing to go with this because the one thing that we've seen with social media, I mean, it is just the high horse generation, man. It gives everybody the ability. You just get up on your high horse and say what you think, and that's fine. But there's always going to be someone out there who can kind of counter it with some, with something fairly compelling as well. So it's 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 a different time now for sure. All right, before we get to the mailbag, I want to say thanks to LegalZoom. Now that we're, as Taylor said, almost one sixth of the way into the year. And New Year's Madness is over. It's time to work on your story for 2018, and LegalZoom can help. You can finally get serious about launching and running your own business, or square away your family's future with the right estate plan. And by the way, if you're the one putting together the estate plan, it's the estate plan that's going to benefit you. (laughs) I'm not saying you've got people in your family you're looking to squeeze out. I'm just saying, if you're the person putting together the estate plan, you're the person putting together the estate plan. And you can do all of that and more with LegalZoom. They've been helping people like you screw over family members. I'm kidding. They've been helping people like you take care of their dreams and responsibilities for over 16 years. LegalZoom is not a law firm, but they have the resources to keep you on the right path, the right path, particularly with that estate plan, including advice from their network of independent attorneys all at your fingertips. LegalZoom plugs right into your life without billing you by the hour, because at LegalZoom, all the pricing is given up front. So, write your 2018 story now with LegalZoom.com. And use the promo code FOOL to get special savings. That's LegalZoom.com. Use the promo code FOOL. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. One more time, LegalZoom.com. Use the promo code FOOL. Our email address at this show is marketfoolery at fool.com. From John Lombard in New York. John writes, I'm a very long-term investor. I almost never have occasion to sell. So, I was caught off guard over the weekend when one of my investments no longer seemed to fit into my investing thesis. I realize that I don't really have much of a backup list, or a watch list, if you will. I focus a lot on the stocks I already own, but since I almost never sell, I've never given much thought to what I would replace one with, should it go sideways. 
I know people ask constantly about what the right number of stocks to own is, but I'm wondering how many stocks do you guys typically keep waiting in the wings? Thanks, and I hope you can come back to New York City soon. Uh, I do too. That was a great uh, trip that we took up to New York. Um, I- I'll just uh, speak for myself, Taylor. Uh, not many. My my waiting list is usually single digits, and it's usually low single digits, just because I I don't make that many transactions. Mm-hmm. So I don't really. Uh, at any given time, I'll have maybe three to five stocks that I've got on a watch list. Yeah. What about you? I don't know. Mine. I think mine probably right now is uh, anywhere from fifteen to twenty. But like half of those probably aren't really serious. They're just companies that I'm interested in, and, and maybe one day down the road they strike my fancy enough to join the portfolio. But um, yeah, probably the core watch list is is ten or so. Yeah, I mean, looking through the uh, million dollar portfolio, the way we're running things there, we have a portfolio with 34 holdings today. Now, one of those is a dual class with Google or Alphabet, so we actually have 33 companies in there. We have a watch list with 32 wow. ideas. But now we also have three. I was going to say you have a team. Yeah, yeah, right, so yeah. break that out. And maybe you have 10 to 11 names per per analyst that, that we're covering and watching. And I would say that's on the high side. Like I don't. My personal watch list, I think, is around six six businesses right now that I don't currently own. Um, but the point that he uh, alluded to there earlier, I think, was. A lot of times, the best idea is a stock that you already own, mm-hmm. you know, and adding a little bit to a position in a stock that you already own. And, and so, I would certainly, I, I know that I look at my portfolio often, and rather than looking at my watch list, I'm looking at some of those companies that I've held for long periods of time. I've gotten to know them better. They're good performers. You like adding to businesses mm-hmm. that are winning, and, and so oftentimes, really, the best idea is one you already own. But I think you know, keeping a watch list with something like five names seems manageable. Yeah, and sometimes I'll even throw a company I do own on my watch list mm-hmm. just so that you can see different. So, like if you hold it for a couple of years, your return is going to be different than maybe if you started watching it six months ago. That way, you can kind of see different fluctuations in the stock price and maybe in your portfolio if you've had a long run. A ten percent move down isn't going to really be a noticeable reflection there. But if you just added it to your watch list and all of a sudden it's down ten percent, you're like, oh, maybe I should take a closer look to add to this position. Taylor Muckerman, Jason Moser, thanks for being here, guys. You got Thank it. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>